Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about some of Bach's trio sonatas. It's almost surprising that so few Bach trio sonatas have come down to us. The trio sonata was, after all, the favorite form of chamber music in both the middle and late Baroque. The idea of two equal melodic instruments, quite often violins but also flutes and oboes, interweaving above a continuo part proved very appealing to most composers of instrumental music. Think of Corelli's marvelous trio sonatas, as well as Telemann's and Vivaldi's, just to mention some of the most illustrious composers of the period. It's certainly not the case that Bach was uninterested in the trio sonata concept. Bach applied that concept to equal and intertwining melodic lines over a bass line, which serves as a harmonic anchor, again and again to a wide variety of instrumental compositions. We've noted in previous episodes how frequently sonatas for individual instruments become, in effect, trio sonatas in Bach's hands, when the right hand of the accompanying harpsichord becomes an equal melodic partner in the texture, and the harpsichord left hand provides the traditional functions of a bass line as well as often participating in the motivic flow. So, although we may have relatively few traditional trio sonatas from Bach, we have a great number of compositions in which he makes use of the principle. One of the few trio sonatas for which Bach's sole authorship can securely be claimed is the sonata in G major for two flutes, BWV 1039. The date of composition is uncertain, somewhere between 1736 and 1741, but it is, at any rate, a fairly late composition. The work is in the form of a traditional sonata da chiesa, four movements, slow, fast, slow, fast, and begins with a slow movement in 12-8 and marked adagio. Such a combination often suggests a gentle, lilting melody, and that's the case here as well, although the melody, presented initially in the second flute, is a fairly busy one. Here is a simplified example of the opening two bars of the theme. This melody is almost a prototype for elegant simplicity. The first measure relies heavily on the notes of the tonic G major chord on strong beats, with connecting scale fragments filling in the weak beats. The two most important motives are introduced in the first two beats. The first begins on B, the third of the G major chord, skips up a third to D, the fifth of the chord, from which a descending flow of sixteenth notes emanates. We'll call it motive A. The second, overlapping motive, starts on beat two. It skips down a third, and then this time, mixing eighths, sixteenths, and thirty-second notes, ascends by step up a fourth, before settling back down on B natural. We'll call this motive B. Here are the two motives together. The second half of the measure is a variant of the first, in which motive B extends the melody to the upper tonic note. In fact, much of what happens in the rest of the movement can be traced back to these two ideas, or variants of them. Here's an actual performance of the first nine measures, 
at which point Bach has modulated to B minor, just one stop actually, in a series of modulations. You probably noticed that the opening melody becomes less and less simple as we proceed. Initially, the first flute's contribution was solely in the form of long, sustained tones and a few piquant suspensions, a role handed to the second flute when the first takes over the primary melodic duties in measure three. But eventually, both flutes are busy with more active 16th note-laden lines, and the continual bass line gradually increases its level of activity as well. Not all of this melodic activity necessarily draws from the two motives I mentioned earlier, but much of it does. Near the end of my example, you may have noticed the introduction of a seemingly new motive, one based on a scale-wise descent of 16th notes. This new motive is bandied back and forth enthusiastically by both flutes, and we do get a sense of melodic contrast, especially because the continual bass line takes this opportunity to add some more rhythmically complex motives of its own. But, as is so often the case with Bach, the new motive isn't completely new. In fact, it strongly resembles what I referred to earlier as motive A, but now lacking that initial eighth note. Of course, that's an important note to miss, and lacking that initial note, this new version of the motive certainly sounds new enough to provide, in connection with other changes in the texture, a sense of variety, if not strong contrast. Eventually, something very much like the original theme returns back in the original tonic key. But the playbook is a little different this time, as Bach heads toward E minor rather than B minor, and introduces a surprisingly dissonant climax along the way. The two flutes continue to trade off familiar motives from there to the end of the movement, and that end introduces a strong descending chromatic line in the continual bass. You'd almost like to call it an unexpected chromatic line, but we've seen time and time again how Bach has introduced unexpected chromatic digressions in the final measures of a movement. In this case, the chromatically descending line deposits us on a D major chord, all the better to propel us into the second movement, Allegro ma non presto in G major. Here are the final measures of the first movement.
Before we get to the second movement, we're going to hear just a little of a later version of this work as a sonata for viola da gamba and keyboard. This is, of course, another example of applying the trio sonata concept to a sonata for two instruments. The texture will, of necessity, be somewhat thinner, since the keyboard right hand will assume the melodic role of the second flute and therefore not be available to provide chords above the continual bass, which is played by the left hand. And when the sustained notes of the flutes are given to the keyboard, they will not have the same effect in regard to setting up slowly resolving suspensions. Here's a little bit of the first movement. The melodic lines originally associated with the two flutes are little changed, although some grace notes and trills are added to the gamba line, and staccato articulation marks are more frequently encountered. It is the bass line that is most subject to change. In this first slow movement, the changes are minor, usually amounting to no more than a change of octave here and there, and the addition of an occasional passing tone not found in the original. In a few instances, the bass line is changed to reinforce the solidity of the cadences, changing the motion from leading tone to tonic to dominant to tonic. In later movements, some of the changes are more noticeable, again with an emphasis on the bass line, which now becomes in places decidedly more active, substituting 16th note patterns for those originally based more on 8th notes. Occasionally, the actual contour of the line is modified, although the harmonic implications are almost never seriously affected. As always, when Bach revisits part or all of an earlier composition to repurpose it, it's fascinating to see what is left in and what is taken out. But for now, we'll move on to the second movement. The second movement, in 3-4 time and marked Allegro ma non presto, begins with a wonderfully perky tune in the first flute, outlining the tonic chord with a distinctive anapestic, short, short, long, rhythmic figure and a struck suspension trill on the first downbeat. This motive is immediately repeated in a slightly varied form to outline the dominant seventh chord. While that particular rhythmic figure then retires for a few measures, Bach guarantees that the rhythmic momentum will continue with the equally lively pattern that follows. In measure 5, the second flute imitates the tune a fifth higher, and the first flute continues with a particularly exuberant ascending countermelody against it, and the first statement concludes with a cadence on G major in measure 10. 
This opening statement is followed by an equally lively figuration-based episode, which sends us to the key of the dominant, D major. Once in D, the first flute reiterates the theme in that key, but it's almost lost in the shuffle, since the harmonic context is much changed, and flute two rushes in to anticipate the second phrase before the first flute can get to it. The situation does normalize fairly quickly, though, as the subject is stated by the second flute, minus the downbeat trills, against the familiar countermelody in the first. But the continuation of the theme is cut off, and we encounter another lively episode based on that continuation and some new anapestic rhythms featuring across the bar ties. Here's the first figuration-based episode leading to the modified return of the theme and the second episode that follows it. As you probably noticed, I continued the excerpt into the next appearance of the theme, which, played by the first flute, slips in back in G major and complete with downbeat trills, although accompanied from the start by a lively second flute countermelody, which sometimes anticipates its motives. I'm only going to play one more episode here, an unusual one, which begins with a definitive cadence in G major although it quickly begins a journey to the key of E minor, primarily by means of a descending sequence pattern in the bass line. The initial melodic material, played by the first flute, is an inversion of the original theme, which actually makes quite a beguiling melody by itself. Initially, it's quite exposed, since, as in the opening bars of the movement, it's accompanied only by the continuo although that continual part is here more active than in the opening measures. After three bars, the second flute begins to imitate this inversion, although already the first flute has wandered off into new directions only vaguely related to the original theme. Once we arrive at a definitive cadence in E minor, another episode is introduced, this one similar to the first in its use of a 16th note figuration pattern in the first flute, and later in the second, in which a descending line is embedded. Soon the inverted subject is reintroduced, this time in the second flute, with the first flute following suit up a fifth three measures later. Thank you. 
after another transitional episode employing some of the same ideas as the second episode, the original form of the theme returns, the second flute sneaking in through a side door with the tonality still in flux. But there's no immediate imitation, and in fact we encounter a series of false returns. Even the continual bass gets into the act at one point, playing in sixths with the second flute. Eventually, of course, we do get a true return of the theme in the first flute, with the second flute imitating, this time at the same pitch level three bars later. As we head to the finish line, elements from the second episode co-mingle with numerous references to the theme, until in the last eight measures, the flutes combine to present the theme once more in imitation right before the final cadence. It's a wonderfully zestful and likable movement, stronger, I think, in the trio sonata version because the competing voices are more authentically equal. The next movement, in an elusive E minor, is in common time and marked adagio e piano. It's only 18 measures long and consists initially of ascending groups of four sixteenth notes, although eighth note triadic and broken third patterns are later introduced, over a slow-moving bass line made up of repeating eighth notes. The two flutes are sometimes matched up rhythmically in sixths and thirds, but also at times trade off contrasting and overlapping patterns in sixteenth notes and eighth notes. The result is not exactly mechanical, but certainly heavily patterned. This approach, focusing not on melodic development per se, but rather the slow unfolding of expressive, often chromatic harmonies, is by no means unique to Bach. Here are the first eight measures of the movement concluding with a secure modulation to D major. The gamba and keyboard version of this movement is understandably thinner in texture, since the right hand of the keyboard part takes on the role of the first flute, and is therefore not available to sound the chord indicated in the continuo symbols of the original version. Perhaps in partial compensation for this loss, the bass line is more active, substituting repeated octave leaps for the repeated notes heard in the original and filling in eighth notes in places where the initial version had indicated rests. Here is the same opening section in the gamba and keyboard version.
We'll move on now to the final movement, a wonderfully playful presto in cut time. Here's a simplified version of the opening theme. It's a great tune, but taking the melody by itself, it doesn't look all that impressive on paper. The first two bars are largely taken up by bouncing around within the tonic G major chord. The rhythmic pattern is lively enough, especially taken at a quick tempo, but it's really just a conventional mixture of mostly eighth notes and quarter notes, which picks up steam as it moves to a cadence on the dominant, where, as you'll hear in a minute, the second flute enters with an imitation of the theme up a fifth. It's frequently tricky to try and diagnose exactly what feature or features of a melody make it particularly notable or ear-catching. For one thing, not all people find the same sort of melody equally notable or ear-catching, and even if they do, it may be for a completely different reason than someone else does. But I'm going to go out on a short limb here to suggest that what makes this melody so attractive is less about the melodic details in terms of intervals and contour, and more about the harmonies beneath it, as expressed by the continuo part, something that was obviously left out of my simplified example. It wouldn't be difficult to harmonize this melody employing just tonic G major chords and dominant D major chords, but that's not quite what Bach does. Instead, he incorporates two seventh chords on the first beat of measure three and measure four, which color the melody in a unique way. The most telling effect comes in measure four, where the melody note, which is repeated over from the last beat of measure three, so it could really be considered a type of suspension, represents the seventh of a half-diminished seventh chord, a chord built on the seventh scale degree in G major. That particular chord is by no means unique or even unusual, but it adds an undeniable piquancy to the melody at that point. All the more when that note, the seventh of the chord, doesn't resolve down by step, as you would expect a dissonance to do, but leaps down a fifth to another note within the chord. This idea, placing a mild dissonance on every first beat of the measure, obviously continues in measures five and six, which repeat the pattern from the earlier measures down a step, but it does so even in the last two measures, in which Bach provides a little rhythmic variety with some across-the-bar ties. Here's a performance of the opening section, with the theme imitated at the fifth by the second flute, starting in measure eight, and in the continuo bass line on the original pitch, down a couple of octaves, eight measures after that. The exposition comes to a solid cadence on the dominant, at that point.
As you heard, I extended the excerpt a little beyond the closing cadence in D major and into the first episode. Here the subject is replaced by more generic scale passages in the flutes, which are later set against long sustained or trilled notes in the first flute, later picked up by the second. And, as in many comparable situations we've already observed, the tonal center is in flux, moving first to E minor, then A minor, where a version of the subject is heard in the first flute, even as the tonality briefly shifts to C major beneath it. This is not a real exposition, so this particular appearance of the subject is not immediately followed by imitation, although there is a little echoing of motives back and forth. And soon we're back in A minor, and then a little later F sharp minor, where the continual bass line surges beneath a series of suspensions between the flutes. Eventually, we are, of course, drawn back to G major, and the first flute comes back with the subject in its original form, soon after imitated up a fifth by the second flute. The continual bass line chimes in eight bars later, and things proceed more or less in predictable fashion. After we cadence on D major, we hear an episode similar to the first, but a little busier, and with somewhat different tonal goals. But Bach will, of course, allow the subject to have the last word, and it does, in a slightly modified version in the first flute. Here are the closing bars, with the first flute offering up the subject for the last time, sometimes beneath and somewhat hidden by the dancing scale figures of the second flute. This trio sonata for two flutes in continuo is by no means among the most elaborate or ambitious of Bach's chamber works, but its vitality and melodic, and in places harmonic, richness is undeniable. We'll turn now to Bach's sonata in E-flat for organ, BWV 525. It's not designated as a trio as such, but written on three staves with two intertwining treble clef parts over a bass line the same configuration Bach employed for organ works which he did specify as trios, such as BWV 583. It's in three movements, fast, slow, fast, and was part of a collection Bach put together for his son, Wilhelm Friedemann. It's a very lovely and attractive work, with the first movement rather lighthearted in mood and the second rather introspective. Here's a little of the first movement in what is assumed to be the original organ version. It's a simple enough subject, two measures long, presented initially in the second line, but it picks up momentum quickly and effectively. Starting from the tonic note, the music arpeggiates first up the tonic chord and then the subdominant, already accompanied by a lively countersubject in the pedals. The melody peaks briefly on the upper tonic note and then cascades down, mixing eighth notes, including trilled eighth notes, and sixteenths along the way. The top voice enters in measure three and replicates the subject up a fifth against a continuing flow of sixteenths in the second part. 
All three parts coalesce for a cadence on tonic in the fourth measure. By measure five, a new motive is in ascendance, an ascending perfect fourth. It's not really a new idea since the subject first introduced an ascending perfect fourth on the third beat of the first measure. But now that ascending fourth begins to dominate, at least briefly, in the top voice. It's heard in a prominent position in the fifth measure and again a step higher in the sixth, although the descending pattern which follows is somewhat different each time. Other motives accrue along the way, but the ascending triadic outlines of the first subject are never far from our ears as we move toward a solid cadence on the dominant in measure 11. Here's another version of the piece at a somewhat brisker clip and employing violin and oboe as the two main melodic instruments with continual support. We'll continue on with this second version to listen to the next section, in which oboe and violin trade arpeggio patterns, moving progressively higher, along with the continual bass, and visiting various key centers along the way until we arrive at the key of the dominant and the subject returns. From that point on, Bach spins out a wonderfully inventive fabric in which the threads are almost always quite familiar, but with the interweaving patterns and colors constantly fluctuating and the rhythmic energy unflagging. Here's the conclusion of the movement.
The next movement is an adagio in C minor with a languid but highly ornamented melody presented first in the top voice and imitated at the fifth by the second voice starting in the third measure, with the top voice continuing on with an expressive flow of sixteenth notes against it. Here are the opening measures of the original organ version. Here's the same opening section in the trio sonata version. After the theme is presented and imitated, we cadence on G minor. At that point, you heard, and it's probably a little easier to hear in the trio sonata version, that the second line breaks into a new flowing pattern of sixteenth notes, one which is repeated sequentially by the top line, resulting in a series of strong beat suspensions. These sequential repetitions lead first to a modulation to E-flat major, and then a little later to F minor. But before we get that far, the continual bass line checks in with a simplified version of the theme, the first part only. Again, it's a little easier to hear this in the trio sonata version. In fact, the bass line becomes quite enamored of the dotted rhythm figure heard first on the second half of the subject's opening bar, repeating it twice more by the time we arrive in F minor. The original subject is never restated from that point on, but the two melodic voices continue to interweave with suspensions in abundance and some new shorter syncopated rhythmic figures appearing in both parts as we work our way back to G minor to end the first section. We're going to spend a little less time on the second section. The second part starts off in G minor with an inverted and more angular version of the original theme although the pattern breaks off after three beats in favor of new motives, which also resemble motives from the first section, although less closely. 
The top voice comes in after a single measure with imitation a fourth higher. And in measure four, when we've arrived at F minor, the continual bass begins its version of the inverted subject, but breaks it off quickly. Here are the opening bars. Proceeding through the second section, Bach doesn't always rely on inversions of his original ideas, sometimes quoting the original motives in their original form or with only slight alterations, and frequently with the parts switched. The final two measures of the second section are a virtual replication of the final two of the first section, now adjusted to end on C minor and with the top and second parts switched. Here are the final measures of the second section. We'll turn now to the final movement in 3-4 time in marked Allegro. It begins with a figuration-based theme without a great deal of personality, but with plenty of energy. The first pattern we hear, presented in the top voice, is a familiar one, a two-level melody with the bottom layer starting on the tonic note and moving up by step as the top level repeats the same tonic note six times in a row. By the third measure, we have moved on to a scale pattern in 16th notes. It starts by leaping from the fifth of the scale to the upper tonic, and then descending four notes. Then we leap up a sixth to the third of the scale, followed by another longer descending line. Measure four concludes this somewhat diffuse subject with another new idea. It starts with an ascending scale fragment, but then moves on to an arpeggiated tonic triad, followed by another ascending arpeggiation, this time of a secondary dominant seventh chord, which tonicizes the dominant chord in preparation for the imitation in the second voice. All of this is accompanied by a slower-moving continuo bass line. When the second voice comes in with the subject at the fifth in measure five, the first voice continues with another sixteenth note pattern against it, but when that second voice moves on to the sixteenth notes in the subject, the first voice reverts to an eighth note pattern against it. Here's what this sounds like when all of it is put together in the original organ version, the first eight measures. In measure nine, securely back in the original tonic key, the continual bass line jumps in with the subject on the original pitch level down a couple of octaves, but it breaks off again after a pair of bars. 
But now the top force returns with a new idea, based initially on an ascending scale line in 16th notes. That idea is now imitated, canon-like, in the lower octave by the second voice one measure later, although after four measures this too breaks off. But new patterns continue to evolve and are imitated back and forth as we glide through the circle of fifths, although the two melody parts occasionally join together in thirds and sixths, and the continual bass frequently quotes the ascending pattern heard in the opening bars. Here is the entire first section in the trio sonata version, with an oboe on the top line and violin on the middle line. It will come as no surprise that the second section begins on the dominant with an inversion of the original subject, this time starting in the violin against a bass line reasonably similar to that heard in the opening measures of the movement. The inverted subject is duly imitated four bars later in the oboe and picked up again in part by the bass line after that. Bach does add some new wrinkles as we proceed, but there is much that sounds familiar, and we're going to stop here. We've only looked at two trio sonatas, the second not even originally designated as such by Bach. But these works, along with many others we've looked at over the course of several episodes, make it abundantly clear that Bach found the notion of two intertwining treble melodic lines over an active continuo bass much to his liking, and capable of expressing a wide variety of moods and effects. We'll leave it there for this episode, and in the next, we'll look at some of Bach's music for lute. <laughs>